All right, folks, let's find Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read ver- just verse 20 of Luke chapter 22. In verse 20 of Luke 22, our Lord says, And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Let's pray. Father, I adore you, and I thank you, Father, for the opportunity to come together with my family, Father God, to be able to share your word, Father. And I pray, God, that though I have struggled with it, I pray, God, that it is appropriate and that it is finished and is ready, Father God, for for your people and that it will be a blessing to them, Father. I pray, God, for as little of me in it as there could possibly be, Lord. I pray, God, everything that I left on the table was something, God, you did not want in the midst of this. And I pray, God, for only the meat of the gospel. God, it's a at the end of this, Father God, there's a, a, a complexity, Lord, that I'm, I'm thrilled by. I'm thrilled, God, because I'm, I feel like I myself am learning things about, uh, about this moment, this, this time, God, that we celebrate in our church and we put so little thought into. Father God, I pray, God, that I've grown because of it, that is with all the, 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 the preaching and the teaching that goes on in this church, Father God, I pray, Lord, that we are submitted and surrendered people from preacher to, to listener and that we're already, God. <clears throat> we're all ready to, to grow, Father, and to learn, and to be more and more faithful, Father. That's what I'm praying for, God. So I'm asking you now, God, please bless us that as we seek you out now, Father God, that, um, that you will show us things we, we have no right to, Father God, but that because you've shown them, we have to grow, grow through them. Lord, show us now more through the Lord's Supper than we ever knew was there, God. I praise you, God. In the name of Christ, I pray now, Lord. Amen. Um, At His Last Supper, Christ Jesus is establishing uh, what I'm going to call the future of biblical salvation. Um, It existed before, but at this moment, there's a ratification of biblical salvation in the heart and the, the mind of Jesus right now, which He's sharing something more than just bread and cup. It's in the fullness of His being and the fullness of His sacrifice. From this point forward, the Old Testament law will be forever fulfilled. And I mean not just in, uh, in the cup and in the bread, but in everything the cup and the bread would come to symbolize. New Testament pistuo will reign. This is, we are a people of belief in Christ, of belief in the gospel. It is something that we have been that is that we have been enabled to believe that has changed us radically in every way. It's not a new set of priorities or a, a new idea, but it is something that is so powerful when you believe it. When God enables your heart to do that, that it changes everything about you. That's why I had to use the, the Greek term pistuo because it's not like any other belief. We understand what belief is. And I'll be honest with you, beliefs in childhood come and, and they go and we aren't left shattered by that. No one walks around by some because there was some myth or some idea they believed as a kid and now they don't believe it anymore and their whole foundation of their life is destroyed. That's ridiculous. We all believe childish things. We all believe some sort of fantasy about where babies come from. Dude, we don't lay out for our three or four year olds the gritty details of it. They don't need to know that yet. We all relate something 
in a way that's not necessarily brutally honest and true. And we do that because later on we will adopt more adult ways of believing. We're not shattered. We're not left hopeless because those things were not true. But stuo belief is different. Stuo belief emanates from the heart and mind of God. It's not, it's not simple ascension. It's not, it's not some kind of easy slipping. It is a kind of belief that changes everything about us. And when you've been through it, when you've actually been through this kind of belief, when your heart was one way and God radically changed you, you know how shocking it is to the, to the rest of life. Stuo belief reigns through the New Testament. Inspired writers will spend the rest of the Bible elaborating on important Christian ideas like Christology, big, heady preacher stuff like the nature and character of Christ. It's, a, it's not a term that the Old Testament is silent upon, but without the New Testament, we really would not understand the nature of Jesus. But because we have the New Testament, because the Testament wasn't closed, the heart and mind of God wasn't darkened to man at the end of the New Old Testament, but something new would come. We have the entire picture now. So ideas like Christology or holiness or sanctification are, are elaborated upon endlessly in the New Testament. So, while the Lord Jesus does not in any fashion indicate that the Old Testament is useless, doesn't do that at all. In fact, we know he talked about the Old Testament constantly. Quotes the Old Testament on the cross. He indicates to us that something vitally important has come about before the eyes of the disciples. If there's one thing we need to walk away with that image, that kind of mind picture that we have of the, the, the Last Supper is that something was going on there that would, would not, that had never happened before. There was a fellowship between God and man right there that He meant for us to remember forever. So we're going to talk about that today. Beginning with this statement, do this in remembrance of Me, He says. Jesus connects cup and bread to Him. The cup and the bread are connected to Jesus Christ. The command is not to do this and remember the moment they had together or the meal, but the one who both offers it to you and is the offering. Do this because it's me. The blood is the blood of Jesus. The bread is the body of Jesus. Do this and remember the one who offers it and the one who is that. This is my body given for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood, the blood of Jesus. It equates without limitation the new covenant, which is the offering, excuse me, the new covenant with the offering, which makes it real. We could talk about covenants all day long, but the reality was there was a sacrifice given. If Jesus had been an iota less holy, if He'd been an iota less faithful, if He had not been the God He claimed to be, if none of that had been true, then the new covenant would simply be an agreement between men. But the reality is, it was a covenant, an unbreakable bond between God and man by way of faith. Unbreakable. 
would never be damaged. Not because you and I are good or able to maintain our end of the covenant. The the opposite is true. It is so unbreakable because first and foremost, the blood that ratifies it is absolutely unbreakable blood. But add to that the other notion that even our faithfulness emanates from the mind and heart of God. I am faithful because God enables perseverance. God does this work. Coming this covenant is prophesied in the Old Testament and realized in the New. While the Old Testament reigned through the teaching of Moses and the prophets, the future was always evident in their teaching. Always. Look, Moses begins with this theme by saying in Deuteronomy 18.18, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. He says there's going to be this new kind of prophet. It's all going to begin when there's a new prophet. And he's looking beyond those men whose names he may not even know. I mean, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the twelve. He's looking beyond them to a new and better... If we're going to have a new and better covenant, it begins with a new and better prophet. One who does what? I'll put my words in his mouth and speak to them all that I command him. We'll never hold back. He'll never do it in arrogance. He'll never do what I do from occasion. Allow my problems to infest the pulpit or infest the sermon. He doesn't do that. He's always gospel-minded. He's always truth-minded. He's always like that. I'm never. Shocking, I know. I'm never. And neither the other men who've ever inhabited this pulpit. None of them was able, ever able to divorce what they said here from, from reality, from what they were living. But Jesus carried every burden all the way to the cross and they never overcame Him. What you heard from Jesus was exactly, precisely what God wanted you to hear. That's why His words are recorded and mine will be thrown away someday. That's why His words change the world and mine damage it. So so have that in mind as, as you listen. In the person of Christ, the statement's realized. So Moses predicts it, he prophesies to it. Christ is the realization of it. In John 8, 28, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, he speaks of himself. And then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. He does nothing of his own authority. God sent him, he does exactly what God sent him to do. The sovereignty of God creates a new covenant which is based on the coming of a new administrator of the covenant and a new and perfect sacrifice. Everything about this covenant is brand new. The blood that makes it possible and the one who offers the sacrifice, it's all new. It's not men. It's now God offering God a sacrifice for the sins of man. All of this is prophesied in and and supported by the teaching of the Old Testament. So I get past that. We We don't plow a new furrow. It's all been laid out. It was all right there all along. The fact that the Pharisees didn't see it or the Sadducees didn't see it, that the scribes didn't see it, the fact that the the people of the New Testament are ignorant of it is only because of their ignorance. It's right there in front of them. Jesus makes this abundantly clear throughout His public ministry. If you had just looked, Edo, if you could just see and understand, it's right there. All of this is prophesied, supported by the Old Testament. The proper fulfillment of everything the sacrificial system proclaimed is in the person of Jesus Christ. When he says he fulfilled the covenant, that's exactly 
precisely what he means. The Old Covenant, all these demands, and we could meet none of them. People by themselves could meet none of them. All we could do was offer the blood of bulls and goats, and that wore off. It failed to offer eternal benefit. It failed to offer everlasting righteousness to the one who offered it. Eventually, we were right back there offering that bull and offering that ram. And to be blunt, right now, I have to speak to this, that repentance works the same way, doesn't it? The more I repent, all I do is repent again, right? I don't know that I've ever fallen to my knees and repented of anything that I've not wind up right back there repenting of again. Because every human effort wears off. Every human effort fails. But now through the new covenant, we're offered a God-centered effort in the person of Jesus Christ that fulfills the Old, the Old Testament requirements completely and fully forever. Once the blood is offered, you never go back again for a second dose. Once the blood is shed for your sins, you never have to ask again. They are eternally and everlastingly wiped away. Look, some of the work for us today is understanding this new covenant. But some of it's going to be applying the new covenant. So let's delve into that very quickly. Look, the prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, 30, uh, 31, 31 through 32, prophesied to the coming of a new and lasting covenant, which possesses amazing benefits for those who will faithfully endure. He offers this new covenant, and it does something for us that the old just couldn't do. He writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now those are sh- that's, that's a shocking statement from our God. Now, I'm going to look at it some more, but let me share with you quickly. He made a covenant with Israel when when they were slaves in Egypt. He brings them out, and his assessment of their behavior under the covenant is what? They broke it. They broke it. Now, as I explain it to you, You've had this conversation with your kids, haven't you? They come up to you crying over some toy. And what's your response? You broke it. You broke it. Well, you broke it. What good is it now? It's not. You had one car, now you have two. Or two halves. You broke it. It is worthless. It is both a declaration of truth, they broke it, and it is also an assessment of them. You broke it. The covenant people broke the covenant, destroyed the covenant. It is now worthless because you cannot hold up your end of the bargain. We have all been in a situation like that. I am not heaping burning coals on anybody, including the chosen people. But what I am saying is this. God has ascertained this to be this way, and it is. It's broken. Whatever good it once accomplished is gone because it's broken. But then he he does something. Look, though our Lord had fulfilled his personal commitment to the children of Israel, his end of the bargain of the covenant was good. He held it up. 
In fact, he characterized his competence by referring to himself as their husband. That's what he says, right? He says, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Now, I know, ladies, please, do not compare the Lord to your husband. Um, By the way, no man can bear that load. It's an unfair thing to do, to compare your husband to what the eternal Lord can do for you. Every man will fail and wither under those requirements. But, But don't, at the same time, don't view this image through the idea of an earthly husband. What God says is, though we were in a love relationship, because that's what husbands are in love relationships with their wives, and a relationship of provision, God upheld every end of it. Everything that God would talk about later on through Paul and Ephesians about what it means to be a godly husband, to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave us the Lord, God had done that for Israel. He had sacrificed and He had given and He had provided and He had done everything in the world and it was never good enough for those people. It's never good enough. Like I said, I would not heap burning coals on them, but I would definitely draw a line between us and them, understanding this much, that we are often exactly that way with the covenant, aren't we? It's everything about us and everything provided for us. And one minute that we don't get what we want, what do we think about our God? He's not upholding His covenant. And He declares, I've been a husband to you the entire time. Look at yourself. Look at yourself. So we're always caught in that, aren't we? That trap. We have to look at ourselves. But yeah, God is always faithful. Am I always faithful? Because I'll be honest with you, biblically speaking, I I can't speak to you, I can speak to Tony. Biblically speaking, Tony right here, oftentimes, mistakenly, has a different idea of faithfulness than God does. What I call faithful, God calls unfaithful. What I call upholding my end of the covenant, God calls treachery. Adultery. He says you think you're being faithful, but you're really not being faithful. What you call faithful, I don't call faithful. We have to always be be mindful of that idea. The chosen people rebelled against God's love and broke His covenant. They broke His heart. The response of the holy and just God is to, to bring about a new and better covenant. So God's response to the fact that His chosen people defied His covenant and destroyed it, was not to condemn them, but to replace that covenant with a new and everlasting covenant. One not based on, based on earthly righteousness, but one based on heavenly and everlasting righteousness, not of ours, but of Jesus. So from this point forward, our faith depends on the faithfulness of Christ and not the faithfulness that you and I can manage. Is that clear? That's, that's the point. One ratified not by the faithfulness of men and women, but eternally durable and everlastingly justifying because it's based on the righteousness of a better sacrifice. No more bulls and goats, the Son of God. The new covenant will lead to a restoration of the entire created order to a new and perfect Eden, which lasts for all eternity. That's what's so great about this new covenant is it doesn't just lead to the salvation of little old you and little old me. I know for the most part, we look at that and that is enough for us. It is enough for me that I don't have to go to hell. It's enough for me that I get to go to heaven when I die and be with Jesus. That is oftentimes enough. And what I think we tend to do is neglect the greater part of it. Because as great as it's going to be to die one of these days and open my eyes and see the beautiful face of Christ... 
It is going to be so much better even that when my grave is burst open and I rise again to a new everlasting life on a new and perfect creation. The final thing. Not floaty and wings and harps and all that comic book nonsense. Not a Doonesbury cartoon or something like that. But that when that grave flies open and I rise again never to be sick again and you rise again never to be sick again, realizing a commitment God has made to an everlasting covenant that lasts forever. Forever. So that death really isn't that moment swallowed up in victory. Until then we'll see the sting of death, won't we? Until then we'll gather in places like this and we will bury people. And one of these days that sting of death is going to be gone. It's going to be replaced by everlasting life in God's people. The restoration function of the gospel found in the blood of Jesus is seen in countless verses throughout the Old Testament. Look, just a handful of them and a few aspects of them. Give me just a few more moments. In Joel chapter 2, verses 25 through 26, 26, the Lord explains the real meaning of the restorative covenant by using this image. He uses a farming image. I love it. Or actually a famine image is what it really is. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. The hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise, satisfied to be pra- and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. Look, every cost of sin is restored to the repentant and the faithful through the new covenant. Now, I'm, maybe we don't see it enough. Maybe we're not conscious of it enough. But I want you to think for just a second about how much sin has cost you. I look back at decades of frustration and decades of perversity and decades of darkness. Decades of desiring death more than I ever longed for life. And I think to myself right now at this moment, God's promise through Joel is that everything I squandered, He will restore. That I am a Job who did it to himself. That you are a Job that cursed himself. And that everything it cost you, everything your sin ruined, God promises to restore. Why do we need a life after death? I mean an earthly, open, created life after death. Why do the graves need to be, bur- to be burst open? Why for the fulfilling of verses just like this? So that everything you ruined the first time, God gives back the second time. Everything you squandered and, and, and threw away, God gives back. Every curse that sin wrought upon your life, God undoes. Now that's the promise. That's the great promise. In Jeremiah 30 verse 17, the Lord promises a restoration. Not just a provision or plenty, but even physical health. How many of us have sinned so grievously that we hurt our health? We ruined ourselves. I looked at myself and said, what would I be if I had not been that man? What could I be right now if I hadn't been like him? He says in, in Jeremiah thirty seventeen, For I'll restore health to you, and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they've called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. My goodness, gracious alive. How many of us in this room caught in the depths of sin have looked at ourselves in the mirror and said, no one cares. 
So no one cares. And yet Jesus died for the ones where no one cares for. And Jesus promises to restore everything to the one for whom no one cares. That no one is cast out so far, they're cast out of the sight and the love and the glory of the living God. And no one can run so far that they will not find a loving God waiting. No one can. Also, the new covenant of God will bring benefits in the current world. As David, David petitions God for help in Psalm 51 verse 12. It's so familiar. We've talked about it so many times. He says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold uh, me with a willing spirit. Look, though the life lived in the present age is characterized and dominated by sin and shame and repentance for the believer. Now I know there may be some of us in this room that either don't know the Lord yet, so they simply have not realized the depths of their depravity. There's one thing that God shows you in your salvation. is just how bad you are. If God has never shown you how dark and pitiful you really are, to be blunt with me, you're not saved. What would cause anyone to cry out for mercy to the living God other than seeing in reality how shameful they really are? God has to show us our shame. But one of the sad things about life on this earth is that our lives after that can be dominated by repentance and all the reasons for repentance. By the fact that we have never managed to not sin against the living God. We will grow to hate it. We'll grow to love the Lord more. And all things are, are absolutely true. But Brother Rudy, the one bitter truth about it is is that we remain, we remain what? We remain uh, simul justice et peccator. Simultaneously righteous and wicked at the same time. And that there's no man or no woman on this earth that lives long enough that they have nothing to repent over. But God keeps us broken throughout our entire lives. But the benefit right now has been exactly what Paul says, is that even when you have been wicked under the covenant, even when you or I have sinned grievously against the living God and broken His heart, and we should have known better. We're not the lost living in darkness. We are the righteous of God living in light, and yet we have denied the light in our lives for the purposes of serving our flesh. Whenever we have done that, we can still go to God and say, Restore to me the joy of salvation. I, my heart breaks, God. Restore my broken heart. We can still do that. It is still our right and God will look at us and not deny it, but do that very thing. David, a murderer, prayed this prayer to God and was restored. Don't let that escape your attention. But He doesn't just restore us. He upholds us. No offense. I know how we do things. Um. A lot of us will say this, and I've, I've said it before, it's shamefully true about me, it shouldn't be. You know, I'm really, I really love people and all, but once I'm through with somebody, I'm just through. You ever heard that? Ever said that? Don't lie. I bet everybody in this room has said that. Everybody in this room thinks they're a person just like that. Here's the reality. If God applied the same standard to you, you'd be in hell. If God applied exactly that standard to you, once, once you cross him enough times, he would be done with you. But the reality is the living God is never done with you. Even though you're a murderer like David, you cry out to him for the joy of your salvation, and he doesn't just provide joy, but he willingly upholds you. You did everything in the world, just like that little... You, you, we've all tried to hang on to a child in a parking lot, haven't we? 
And what are they trying to do? Pull away as hard as they can, aren't they, Mike? They will break their arm off like a coyote to get away from your loving grasp. You're trying to keep them from dying. It's like they want to die. And we are all exactly like that in the grasp of a righteous father, aren't we? Chewing at our own arms like a wild animal to try to get away from the one who loves us so desperately. You would let go of you, wouldn't you? You would turn that arm with fine, do what you want to do. How seldom does our God say fine? I've said this once before. I remember the sermon pretty distinctly. The, the, the most terrifying thing you can ever hear from your parent is fine. What does fine mean? You've made up your mind. You're going to go your own way. Go ahead and do it. You know better than me. Go ahead and do it. Fine. Fine doesn't mean they agree with you. Fine means they're going to let you have your way, and your way is condemned. And your way is doomed. The worst thing in the world we could ever hear from a living God is to release that arm and say, fine. Run. Do what you want. My way's always wicked. My way's always evil. Yours is too. But what does God do? He upholds us with a willing spirit. <coughs> The new covenant in the blood of Christ allows for all its beneficiaries to dispense with the emotional and judicial requirements of sin in this life and enter to the new heavens and the new earth unabated by the pain, guilt, and embarrassment associated with the flesh. I hate to bring that other one up, but it's so important. Another thing, burden that I know we, a lot of us bear. What is more hard to deal with than being embarrassed? I mean embarrassed. I mean where you feel like you can't show your face in town. You feel like going to the Dollar General is a death sentence because you might see somebody you know. I caused myself a ton of embarrassment for my own sin. The beautiful thing about the gospel is my embarrassment dies here. It's another one of those bitter, terrible feelings I will never know again. You'll never know again be washed away in the blood of Jesus. Along with all the tears that I've ever shed, washed away like a single teardrop lost in rain. The prophet Isaiah writes in Isaiah 61, 7, Instead of your shame, there'll be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. The new covenant makes promises so contradictory to reality that only the infinite power of God and the incalculable preciousness of the sacrifice of Christ could make them true. He promises something. I don't understand how He does it, but He does it because of Jesus. He does it because the, the sacrifice is so righteous, so infinitely, perfectly righteous. It's so powerful. Look, the life of, of humans is full of shame and regret. I mean, maybe you don't realize it. I just feel like I realize it every single day how much shame I have and how many regrets I have for my life. And there's nothing harder to deal with than regret. God promises a double portion of Himself in response to my shame and my regret, regret and my absolute embracing of the degradation that I've inflicted upon myself. God says, I'm going to promise you in the next life more than you can handle of me. We dishonor ourselves unto God who loves us daily. The Lord provides joy. You know what you're going to get in, in eternity because of the blood of Jesus, because of a new covenant in His flesh? Joy. You're never going to be unhappy again. Even those people who are only happy when they're unhappy are never going to be unhappy again. 
You know people are only happy when they're mad? Only happy when they're fussing? They're never going to have a cause anymore. What's broken in here is going to be eternally fixed. Land. This constant source of wealth and status on this world and understanding most of it's owned by somebody else. Leaving us, almost all of us, worldwide, to be homeless wanderers. I remember very, very quickly that we went to a place called the Rice Paddy Village. I've been there a couple times, like three times maybe, in Haiti. And the girls and the big group went there. Melanie's been there. And lots of us who went that one time went there. They came out and they wanted to build them a church. And went through all this rigmarole trying to fight, get the, gather the money, build them a church. Come to find out they were squatters. They lived in a ditch on the side of somebody else's land. Didn't own a square inch of it, brother buddy. Couldn't have built anything on it. Because they didn't even own what they lived on. They would live there, die there, and be buried there. And never own it. Never, ever own it. Most of the world lives just like that. Not even owning the little patch of ground they have. Leaves us all to be homeless wanderers, immigrants and refugees, without roots or place. Instead, we'll have possession. God's going to give you something you can never purchase on your own. Paul explains this standing with both God and creation when he says in Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Together, the children of God will have a land, a double portion of that which is priceless. As we used to say, what makes land so precious? They're not making any more of it, right? Land is a finite entity. So therefore, to own a little part of the earth is an important thing. Even if it's an acre, it's yours. And it's important because there's no more like it, right? In the end, the new covenant belief in the gospel, which transforms dead lives and living tributes to the glory and peace of God, will give us eternal and everlasting joy. That's what the covenant does for us there in Isaiah 61, verse 17, that new covenant. Then now finally, the key to our collective future is in the new covenant, which Christ speaks of, ratifies with His righteousness, and is the sacrifice for on the cross of Golgotha. Back to that new covenant. How is this joyful state entered into by men and women. Like I said, how do we understand it? And how do we really apply it? How do we really get this? If I'm not part of this new covenant, how do I become a part? Well, he says this. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.15, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So who owns and runs the new covenant? What Jesus does. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since the death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So that what's understood is there was a first covenant. We all transgressed it. We've all transgressed the covenant of our eyes, the covenant of sight. Then we look up and we see the glory of God and that we deny the glory of God. We reject Him for someone else. Just as right here with the twelve accepting those cups, one of them had already rejected Him, right? No matter what He said or did, Judas would never believe. No matter how many times he said in church, or how hot the preaching was, or how confident the pastor, even with it being Jesus Christ, it did not matter for Judas. He would always be a Judas. He'd always look in the face of the living God and accept the cup and accept the bread and deny their power. Always. Always. Those who are called may receive from God the eternal inheritance of the covenant because the death of Jesus on the cross for the sins in His people has redeemed the rightful cost. The penalty of sins 
legally, morally, and the offense caused to the lawgiver. Because all three of those things are in play when I sin against the God. I have a legal responsibility because He is my King. I have a moral responsibility because He is my God. And I also have a relational responsibility because He has loved me before the foundation of the world and I have chosen to spit in His face. I have all three of those things hanging over my head in my sinful state. And every sinner, if there's one gathering in this room today, has exactly that same responsibility to the true Son of God. Legal, moral, and emotional. Therefore, all that is needed is for God to call. And that is clearly the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As He says as much in Luke 5.32, He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Why did He come to start with? To call sinners to repentance. So Jesus came to inaugurate something that would continue until He returns. And that is the calling of sinners to repentance. Consider yourself called if you're in this room today. If there's sin in your life, rampant, unabated, and unwashed sin in your life today, then Jesus has called. Consider yourself called to the throne. Consider it done today. Our Lord came, He lived, He died, He rose, and ascended for the purpose of calling the world to repentance. Today you're called by God to repent of the sins of your life and embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, the new covenant in the blood of the precious Son of God. Understand this much today, that your Lord Jesus Christ, the one who died for you, demeaned Himself. He belonged in heaven. He chose earth. He belonged on a throne. He chose the dirt for us. His rightful home for the purpose of calling the world to turn its back on sin and its face to the throne of God. What does He demand today? For you to turn your back on your sin and turn your face to the one who died. It's that simple thing that you've been through before. When you were called up by someone, when you were called up by someone whom you had injured, and they went to you, and all they asked was this, just look at me. Have you ever heard those words? Have you ever said those words? You know their power. Just look at me. All He requires is this today. The risen Savior asks that you look upon His face. You're called today to this life-altering task. Turn your face from what has allured you and your eyes to the Son of God. And I'm going to ask you today to repent of your sins and throw yourself on the mercy of God today. It is the only hope for the soul of man or woman. Let's rise together and pray.